For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with the latest readout video from our free Wednesday wake-up email newsletter and the familiar pitch for you to help fund our work. And if you think that one's not cool, how about this? The Arctic ice is melting faster than scientists thought. That's right, just as it has been for decades, uh, except for all the times it didn't melt when they said it would in 2000, 2004, 2013, 2014, 2015, and so on. But now, yes folks, cue the corny circus music because, quote, a new study finds that Arctic sea ice could disappear in the summers as early as the 2030s, a decade earlier than previously thought, end quote. Settled science strikes again, and once again it's just as bad as scientists said, but different in every other way. And again, with scientific alarmism also recycling another e and &E news story that, quote, the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet, one study after another is coming to the same conclusion, the Arctic is heating up much faster than earlier research suggested, end quote. Somebody chuck that settled science, will ya? And that broken record, because the Arctic ice is not melting again. In the newsletter, we also ponder whether the Canadian government is torpedoing every major conventional energy project in the country through malice, incompetence, or a greasy mix of the two. For instance, the dreaded Trans Mountain Expansion, that's TMX to insiders, a private pipeline project that the state regulated to the brink of death, then bought and kept pumping in money without, you know, pumping out any more fuel. Or the news, painfully dragged into the light, that our highly paid politicians and their army of highly paid public servants and highly paid consultants hadn't realized that our handouts would count as income to Volkswagen rather than tax credits, which is what they are in the United States, and so they'd have to shell out another $2.8 billion to cover those taxes, bringing the subsidy to $16.3 billion, not the announced $13.5 billion. Sorry, not them, us. We have to shell out the extra money. Finance Minister Christia Freeland passed the buck on the vast Volkswagen battery subsidy by saying, quote, We were just not, as a government, going to tolerate a situation in which investment was sucked out of Canada, sucked to south of the border. And I don't think Canadian workers should tolerate that situation, end quote. Although, had she read as many books on economics as she's written, starting with Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, then Minister Freeland would understand that if another government decides to subsidize the production of something valuable, then the appropriate response on our part is to import it and make its taxpayers' loss our consumers' gain. It's pretty basic economics. And while it's all fine and good to puff yourself up and talk about defending workers while picking their pockets, really it amounts to saying we're happy to tolerate a situation where subsidies are sucked out of the country. And for what? So that we can sell batteries at a loss to someone else whose government was marginally less profligate or less economically ignorant? Here at CDN, we don't think Canadian citizens should tolerate that situation since they're the ones paying for it, even if Freeland and her colleagues hope to buy their votes with their own money. In the newsletter, we also note that the revenge of reality continues in Germany, where they're rethinking their ban on gas boilers, also known as water heaters which had been prompted partly by a desire to use less Russian natural gas and partly by an irrational refusal to prefer one fossil fuel, methane, over another, coal, even temporarily. So, though they still apparently can't bear to rethink the taboo on fracking, they do seem to be coming partly back to their senses. 
And in the United States, the rush to ban gas stoves while denying any such intention until it's too late has had an unintended and possibly salutary constitutional impact. House Republicans are trying to require that the legislature have the final say on major regulatory rules of all sorts. And this effort would delight the great theorist of liberty under law, John Locke, who insisted that legislators could not delegate the power to make laws that the people had entrusted to them and them alone to anybody else. Least of all, we add, to the executive branch, the scrutiny and restraint of which is actually the main task of the legislative. Here I'm going to interrupt myself briefly to remind you of the importance of clicking here and supporting our work. Because at CDN, we don't get big government grants. We're not supported by those huge environmental foundations. And we're certainly not in the pocket of big oil. It's up to you, our viewers and our readers, to make a one-time or monthly pledge. $3, $5, $7, so that we can continue to produce the newsletter and these videos and challenge the false consensus around climate alarmism. And now, back to the show. Ah, also, the kelp carbon capture scow plows on, with National Geographic announcing that, quote, a wave of startups say seaweed is a multi-pronged solution to climate change. It can absorb carbon, curb the effects of cattle's methane burps, and feed biofuels, not to mention the world, end quote. Gee, kind of too bad that we don't already have seaweed occurring naturally in vast amounts throughout the seven seas and doing a... Oh, wait a minute. Nope. No time to wait, because from the All Climate News is Bad file, Wired frets that, quote, the upper atmosphere is cooling, prompting new climate concerns. Scientists are worried about the effect this change could have on orbiting satellites, the ozone layer, and Earth's weather, end quote. Whereas if it were warming, would scientists be reassured? Heck no. Speaking of which, in hammering on about supposedly unprecedented conditions, the BBC puts its foot in it after offering more of those charts where even a 1 degree Celsius warming has the Earth in a haze from pink to red, and at about 4 degrees Celsius you apparently get the Maillard reaction where the planet roasts and the Arctic caramelizes. The Beeb bellows, quote, concentrations of the warming gas CO2 in the atmosphere are at their highest in 2 million years. The world is now warmer than at any time in the past 125,000 years, and will likely get warmer still over the next decade, end quote. Okay then, government-funded media dudes. If CO2, the warming gas, is at its highest level in 2 million years, why isn't temperature at its highest level in 2 million years? Why did you cut that series off at 125,000? Oh yeah, because that's when the Eemian interglacial ended, and the Eemian was warmer than the current Holocene interglacial, despite there being no gas stoves, and atmospheric CO2 being at a mere 280 parts per million. In the newsletter, we also note the New York Times claim that, quote, climate shocks are making parts of America uninsurable, end quote. You see, quote, this month, the largest homeowner insurance company in California, State Farm, announced that it would stop selling coverage to homeowners. That's not just in wildfire zones, but everywhere in the state, end quote. The climate shocks in question are also known as a series of 2017 fires triggered by failing state-regulated utility company equipment that ignited the brush piles that bad government forest management practices insisted on piling up. And of course, businesses are fleeing California for all kinds of reasons, including massive urban crime waves, all the result of bad government policy. Also, progressive government policy. But I repeat myself. And Vox, which peddles the same notion that it's climate change, not bad climate policy, even more polemically, 
actually explains that, quote, State Farm will not accept any new applications for business or personal property and casualty insurance in the Golden State. The company, accounting for 20% of bundled home insurance policies and 13% of commercial policies in California, said it was facing, quote, historic increases in construction costs outpacing inflation, rapidly growing catastrophe exposure, and a challenging reinsurance market, end quote. Construction costs. A challenging reinsurance market. All well-known side effects of carbon dioxide. At least to journalists. Of course, it's hard to contain the panic over climate alarmists' fiscal plans and their economic ignorance when scientific communism blares that, quote, rich nations owe $192 trillion for causing climate change, new analysis finds, end quote. Oh, only $192 trillion? No worries then, since global GDP for 2021 was estimated at uh, $96.51 trillion by Google. So, the idea is just for a few rich countries to seize everything produced anywhere in the world for two years and give it to a host of tin-pot dictators, addled populists, and other corrupt and incompetent politicians to save us all from it getting slightly warmer. Or... The other way of going about it is for rich countries' governments to expropriate everything their own citizens make for about a decade and turn that over, tossing it into those same grubby hands, and hope their people just carry on producing even though they have nothing to eat and are not happy. Next cunning plan, please. Actually, instead let's resume our review of the Clintel report on the IPCC's AR6 with their chapter on Northern Hemisphere snow cover. We've previously mentioned the Rutgers Snow Lab data showing declining spring and summer snow cover in the Northern Hemisphere, but increasing fall and winter snow cover, which, as the Clintel report explains, contradicts climate model projections, to say nothing of hysterical warnings about snow disappearing altogether. Of course, the danger of mentioning the Rutgers Snow Lab data is that the IPCC might realize that people are paying attention to it and find some way to throw it down the memory hole. And sure enough, in AR6, the IPCC found another data compilation from a different author that it liked a whole lot better because it mingles actual snow observations with fluffy model-generated stuff to predict the past better. As for the future, well, we shall see. Kluged computer models normally don't seem to perform all that well, now do they? And another thing, if you've watched our video, A Historian Looks at Climate Change, in which I examined historical evidence pointing to the reality of episodes like the medieval warm period and the little ice age, you might wonder why climatologists don't spend more time discussing these events. Well, now one has. It's Dr. John Maunder, who was president of the Commission for Climatology of the World Meteorological Organization from 1989 to 1997, and is a world-renowned climatologist. So yes, he's a climate scientist. And Maunder has published a book called Climate Change, A Realistic Perspective, The Fall of the Weather Dice, and the Butterfly Effect. And in it, he demonstrates in no uncertain terms the reality of episodes like the medieval warm period and the little ice age. Maunder, including on the blog Sun Live, notes that there was no theological reason for all the cathedrals in Europe to be built in the Middle Ages rather than at some other time. Instead, what caused the impetus was the surge in income due to the bountiful harvests during these warm centuries. He writes, quote, A full 400 to 700 years before humans began the Industrial Revolution, the medieval warm period's mild winters and relatively warm and even weather allowed for unprecedented crop growth, urban expansion, 
and the establishment of Scandinavian settlements in Greenland and North America, end quote. Maunder points to all kinds of evidence of prosperity, including this interesting detail, quote, Farmers in medieval England launched a thriving wine industry. Good wines demand warm springs free of frost, substantial summer warmth and sunshine without too much rain, and sunny days in the autumn. The northern limit for grapes during the Middle Ages was about 500 kilometers north of the current commercial wine areas in France and Germany, end quote. And he also argues that the medieval warm period was global, though not completely synchronous. Quote, the medieval warm period, which started a century earlier in Asia, benefited the rest of the globe as well. From the 9th through the 13th centuries, farming spread into northern portions of Russia. In the Far East, Chinese and Japanese farmers migrated north into Manchuria, the Amur Valley, and northern Japan. The Vikings founded colonies in Iceland and Greenland, then actually green, end quote. It's important to realize that Maunder's now retired, so he's free to say what he thinks instead of hewing to the professional party line, which is a very sad comment on academia, and makes his contribution to the debate especially welcome. Oh, more on snow. In the newsletter, we dig into the co2science.org archive for a study of whether the continental United States was seeing a trend toward more extreme snowfall in either direction, or both, and it's less snow, more snow, or winters that are more and more unpredictable, between 1900 and 2007. Nope. Another one bites the frost. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I won't be surfing the Arctic anytime soon. That's right.